This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book, the fourth of a series of studies on the book of Job. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little time while we read two chapters in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 1 and chapter 3. We have had three introductory studies of the book of Job, trying to get some of the atmosphere, get, get ourselves, as it were, acquainted with the circumstances, and now we begin at the first chapter. That doesn't mean to say that this series is going to steadily wade right through every chapter. That would be beyond our ability and beyond our purpose. But we must start at the beginning and get some idea of the way in which it's introduced. Otherwise, we shall be in the same fix that the three friends were in. There's one thing that you are conscious of when you read the book of Job, that neither Job himself nor the three friends that came to comfort him had the remotest idea what had happened. And the poetical part of the book of Job starts with chapter 3 where Job curses the day when he was born. But the first two chapters are not in poetry, they are in prose, written by somebody to make an introduction, and then the closing chapter is also in prose, written by somebody after Job had died, for it tells you how old he was when he died. So, we must remember, when we are reading the expostulations of these three friends, and the way that Job replied, it was because they were groping in the dark. Their theory, as we shall find out, was uh, a very natural one, that nobody is ever afflicted in this life unless he has done something wrong. Well, there are a good many people who take that very line to this day. But this book says no. And our Saviour said no, you remember. He said, think not that they were more wicked than any men upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell. So we've got to be so watchful. Now one of the things which is unveiled in this first two chapters is the extraordinary place that Satan occupies in the scheme of things. There are some who have uh, come to the conclusion that Satan does not exist as a person. That it's simply the spirit of evil which is manifested in the hearts of all men. And uh, when I ask them who was it that tempted the Son of God in the wilderness, as there was no person or Satan to tempt him? Well, they had to admit that he was of like passions as ourselves, and he was tempted like the rest of us. You see, where it gets you to. Uh, but, there are too many statements in the Word of God that speak about the old serpent which is called the devil and Satan, to make us feel that we can explain them all away. Well now, for the first, in the first case, we notice this first verse, if, uh, the way in which it's introduced. There was a man in the land of Uz. I don't know whether you know where the land of Uz is. Uz is? No, I'm not playing with it. Because Uz had a brother named Buzz. And they are both mentioned in Genesis 22. But for our purposes, Uz is a corner of Arabia near to Midian, where Moses fled and lived for 40 years, and touching the borders of Chaldea. I think that's good enough for us. 
Isn't it a wonderful thought to think that nearly every transaction of this holy book has been wrought out in a few square miles in that part of the world for some reason known to God, although not fully explained to us? So it is. Well, in this land of ours, there was a man whose name was Job. Now, I've already mentioned in an earlier study about this man Job, but it is so important that I feel starting the book, I must mention it again. In this Septuagint version, there is an appendix which we do not find in our English Bible. And it reads like this. He himself had for his father Zerah, one of the sons of Esau, and for his mother Basara. And so he was the fifth in descent from Abraham. After Balak came Jobab, who is called Job. Now, as this man was a great man in the East, it says at the end of verse 3, so this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his very uh, property showed him a man of wealth, and there are indications through the book that he was a prince, and a judge, and a ruler, and a man held in great respect and esteem. The three uh, men that come to him, this appendix, the book of the, uh, the uh, Septuagint, tells you were three kings, the king of the Tamanites, the king of the Sankians, and the king of the Minaeans. I, I don't know much about them, but there they're put. Now, it's easy to invent a pedigree of an ordinary person, but it's not so easy to, to invent and foist upon a people the pedigree of a reigning prince, because that involves other people, and there would soon trouble if you were uh, foisting a person who was a fiction into a line of royalty. And so I have no hesitation in believing that this is a true statement, and it's there for our guidance. Well, that leads to the next question. If this man's name was originally Jobab, why was it changed to Job? Now, I don't think that is a question that shouldn't be put. It's a question that should be put. And especially when you know that in the Scriptures, when a man's name is changed in the Scriptures, it is always because of some typical value. Abra Abraham, without the H in the middle of it, was a Chaldean name. Abraham, with the H inserted, becomes a Hebrew word meaning the father of nations. Well, there was a reason to change his name. And so we have others in the scriptures. Jacob meant a supplanter, a rather bad name. But eventually his name was changed by God to Israel, a prince with God. And so you remember others. So that's, you, that should make us say to ourselves, well, if this man's name was originally Jobab, and the story is now going to be called the book of Job, what's the significance? Why the change? Well, then when you look up the word Job, you find that it means enmity in the Hebrew, enmity. And then when you know that Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he put that word enmity in Genesis 3.15. Uh, you know the verse, but perhaps it would be wise to read it, because it gives colour to this book of Job. Genesis 3.15. And don't forget the old serpent is in Genesis 3, and is being addressed here by God. 
I think we'll look at uh, verse 13 at the end. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And if you look at the bottom of this chart, you'll see the word Job. That's the very last one in black letters. And you'll see the word enmity, which is above it. You'll see there's a slight difference, but those differences will be readily understood by a Hebrew student because they are affixes and suffixes that just have to be inserted with regard to the words, their grammatical form, and so on. Uh, but the lexicon gives you the word Job as the word enmity. And Moses, as far as I knew, I know, edited the book of Job, was influenced by it, and he put the word Job in Genesis 3.15 on purpose. Because you have the key to the book. The change in the man's name is the key to the book. It's the enmity of the evil one against the true seed. So shall we pro proceed to consider this. Now first of all, this is what it says about this man Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Well, that's a wonderful statement to be made about any man. He was perfect. Now why does it put perfect first and not upright first? Well, you say, you must put something first so it doesn't matter. Well, it may be there was a choice. This word perfect, I think you'll see uh, it's recorded of Noah and Daniel and Job, that they were righteous, and that this word perfect is used of Noah in book of Genesis. We'll see that in a moment. This word perfect which we have to represent by T-A-M in the English letters, occurs seven times in the book of Job, and other variants of it ten times. So it's a word that's sprinkled through the book. Now what is the implication of the word perfect? Well today, when we speak of the word perfect, we think of someone who is at the very top of the ladder. But, this word had a peculiar meaning in the scriptures and it meant to be without blemish. Without blemish. It was a word used of the sacrifices. If you like to look at Numbers 29, I think you will find that it would use it in that form. Numbers 29, verse 26. down to, um, or right down to verse 29. Chapter 29, And on the fifth day nine bullocks, two rams, fourteen lambs of the first year, without spot. Then it gives further statements. And um, at the, verse 29, And on the sixth day eight bullocks, two rams, and fourteen lambs of the first year, without blemish. Well, you can take a choice. Without spot or without blemish. And of course, in connection with lambs and rams, it was physical. Well, this word is also used of the priests, that a priest was not 
permitted to enter into his office if he had a blemish or a spot, a wen or a scab, anything superfluous or anything missing. That was physical perfection. They may not have been morally perfect, but so far as physical per- perfection was concerned, that was demanded of them. Now, this word perfect is used, if you'll notice, in Genesis 6, verse 9 of Noah. And God speaks of him in these terms. Genesis 6, verse 9. Uh, but in order to, to uh, see the uh, circumstances of the statement, I think we must read the first few verses of chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, and were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation. So that's the point. Whatever this uh, invasion of the sons of God and their connection with the daughters of men may mean, and there are differences of opinion, it was a terrific thing that had happened. God said that all flesh had become corrupt before him. And then there's one outstanding instance from the rest. Noah was perfect with regard to his pedigree and in connection with his generations. It doesn't follow that because an ungodly man marries a good woman that the child that is born of that marriage will be giant or be people of renown that's not the usual consequence makes no difference physically but you cannot read the story of Israel and the way in which they were terrified when they saw the Anakim and the Rephaim and the giants in the land of Palestine and what are you going to do with the bedstead of Og, king of Bashan, which is described and measured? And what are you going to do with the giant cities of Bashan, which have been measured and, as it were, weighed and explored and written and published? You get doors so thick and so heavy that no human being that we know can either open and shut or shut them. You can't conceive of anybody building a building and putting a door in it that you can neither open or shut, and yet they're there, in that land. And so there is every evidence that these things are to be taken at their face value. Or are we going to explain away Goliath, 
when young David went out and his height is given and the weight of his armour is given as though it's all natural and Goliath is one of a, a number you're told that some of his brothers and, and others like him had six fingers into the five monsters they were you see so there is every reason to believe that there was an interference with human life now this is picked up and spoken of through the scriptures in various forms covered certainly not blazoned about, but it's there. You're told that Cain was of that wicked one. And yet, according to the story of Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel were brothers, both of the same mother. But Cain was of that wicked one and slew his brother. Then our Saviour, in going through parable form concerning the kingdom, warned them, that there was an aspect of the kingdom that they must remember that could be likened to a man that sowed good seed in his field and then, while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. Now the word tares was just used by the authorised version for anything that could be represented as a weed. But most of us know that tares are not anything like wheat. You needn't be a botanist or a farmer to pick out wheat from tares. At least I hope not. But if you lived in the East, you'd know that the Eastern farmer has a tremendous problem. For there is what is called a bastard sort of wheat called zoan, which looks like wheat, which grows like wheat, and nobody can distinguish the one from the other until the harvest. And then one will be a, a, something that you could use for nourishment and food, and the other would poison you. And then our Saviour doesn't call the false wheat, wrong doctrine, he said they are the children of the wicked one. So I don't think we must quarrel with the scriptures for letting a little light into a tremendous problem, certainly not instructing us anything about it, that wouldn't be wise or good, but telling us that in this world we may find evidences that there has been an invasion, there has been an intrusion, there has been something in an endeavour to get the possession of the body and soul of men for his own wicked and ulterior purposes. Well now one of the things which is said of Job is that he was perfect and it's because of this relationship to the two seeds that that is mentioned. <clears throat> I just pick out one instance uh, of the uh, way in which the book of Genesis seems to warn you that this was still going on long after the flood. You remember, Abraham and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt and Sarah was immediately taken into the harem of Pharaoh and then God intervened and Pharaoh had to inquire what was the trouble and he learned that she was already the wife of Abraham. Then when they were back again in the land, the thing happened all over again by a king named Abimelech. Looked as though they were rather fond of that sort of thing, but what can you do with eastern kings? And again, the Lord's hand was evident, and Abimelech confessed. Oh, he said, if, you, if, if I'd have gone on, I should have been guilty of a great sin. Later on, I'll have to remind you, I may remind you now and prove it later, that if you go right through the book of Genesis and pick out those who are called sinners and pick out what is called sin, you may be surprised. I remember I was at the Victoria Institute, the Philosophical Society of Britain, 
and there was a speaker who was dealing with some very, very intricate moral problems between the sexes. And as a result of what he said, I stood up and said a little bit that I may contribute may be useful. And they printed it in their their, um, record and it's still available in their books. I said I was looking up the occurrences and meaning of the word sin. The Hebrew word ketar, sin. And I naturally turned to Genesis 3, but there's no word for sin in Genesis 3. But you only read of two classes who are called sinners, and one were the Sodomites. And there's only two people that are associated with the word to sin, and that is those who are associated with sexual immoral practices. That's all it says in Genesis. Now we think about sin as being a covering term for all sorts of criminal acts. It may be so. But it may be that God has put his finger there on some of the root causes of these things and we dare not treat it lightly. Now we come back to the book of Job. Job was not contaminated with regard to his pedigree. That's the meaning of the word perfect. So he was one of the true seed. Now the true seed must be a thorn in the side of Satan if Satan is a person. If he's the God of this world and the prince of this world and if he has forfeited a position and if he's an antagonist to God and his purpose then those who are the seed of God will be uh, a prey and a legitimate object of his hatred. And so, it's astounding that in this book we have a record of a peculiar bargain. It may be put in human terms, but it must indicate some truth. But before we deal with that, we take the other word. This man was not only perfect without blemish, but he was upright. And this word in its various forms we meet in different ways. Let's look at it quickly. Job 4, 7. Elias, the Temanite, is now beginning to try to comfort Job. And he says, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Well, I think we could give instances where the innocent perish, but this was where, that's as far as Eliphaz had got. And here we have the word righteous, which is this word upright. And chapter 8, verse 6, If thou wert pure and upright, Surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Same argument, see, which stirred up all the opposition in the heart of Job. Because this man says that he would maintain his integrity. Chapter 2. The challenge involves that. Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. That's integrity, friends, and God acknowledges it. And so right through this book, we find he's holding that fast. But at length, when we emerge at the other end, Although this man stands out as a righteous man, he suddenly collapses. He said that if only he could get to the throne of God and the seat of God, he would maintain his cause. 
He would hold fast to his integrity. And at last he gets his opportunity. And then he says, I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now might I fear thee. I bore myself, I repent, in dust and ashes. It's the finest witness you could ever have. It doesn't say Job was condemned because he was a sinner. It says Job failed because his very righteousness was not good enough. And there are very few people who've got such a bombastic idea of themselves as to say they, they could go better than Job. Or if they did, they'd find another man waiting for them in the New Testament who said, if you can boast in the flesh, I more. And among other things, that man said, touching the righteousness of the law, he said, I was blameless. And yet, even though he was blameless, touching the righteousness of the law, he said, I flung it all on one side and I desire to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. So here we have an example. But on the other hand, it warns us. Because, you know, you can bring two passages of Scripture together as an apparent contradiction. You may take one side and quote Romans chapter 3, which says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And somebody else may take another side and quote Romans the fifth chapter and say, for a righteous man, you wouldn't get someone to die, but perhaps for a good man. Whereas in chapter 3 he says there's none good and there's none righteous. Chapter 5 says there are. But don't you see? From the absolute sense, there are, there's none righteous. But there are some who are relatively righteous. The Apostle Paul, who scrupulously kept the law of Moses, was relatively a righteous man. And everybody would acknowledge it. So that's what it got, means here. Job was a righteous man so far as any standard that you could put, uh, put him up to would reveal. It was only the standard that he was stood against at the end that revealed that the most righteous man on earth, and he must have been extraordinary for he's linked together with Daniel and Noah and Job, these three, uh, picked out from all other men as having an outstanding righteousness. And it never saved him and he was ashamed of it at the end. I don't think we need to rub it in with regard to ourselves. I don't expect anybody in this meeting would say that they think themselves very much better than Job. If you did, I don't think we'd believe you. And of course, I can't tell what sort of people are going to listen to this, but I, I'll anticipate that nobody who listens to this would have the presumption of saying that they also were better than Job. So here's the evangelical lesson coming out. We're going to get it later on. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto men his uprightness. Fancy. Then he says, deliver him, I have found a ransom. But what's he showing his right uprightness for? To show him that it's not good enough. It's a greater condemnation for us all to discover that a righteous man like Job needed a ransom. You could understand if he was a wicked sinner he needed a ransom, but Job did. And so all in good time when we reach that chapter, we should have to thrash that out. Well, now let's come again to another aspect. I can't put it all in. You've got this chart in front of you. There's a good many passages there that you may look up at your leisure, that is, supposing you have it. And let's look at another feature. 
you remember the passage we read in Zechariah 1 and 3? We have that strange statement about the different coloured horses and they're walking up and down in the earth, evidently taking notice, giving reports. It makes you think of the four horses of the book of the Revelation, similar, and they are associated apparently with war and pestilence and the white horse rider who was a travesty of Christ. Then in chapter 3, Satan is there, withstanding God, resisting, and the Hebrew word to resist is the verb Satan. He was acting in character. Satan standing at the right hand of God to Satan him, to resist him, to oppose. And he was opposing the cleansing of the high priest, who in his turn was a picture of Jerusalem and God's purpose therein. Now all this is letting light upon a subject about which we should know nothing from our own experience or history. But every now and again we get evidence from the scriptures that there is a, an unseen, invisible world about us which is very, very potent and very, very real. And every now and again there are some things that take place in this world's history that make even people like ourselves say, you know, that's not human, that's diabolical. And perhaps we are saying more than we really understand. So we notice that it says, uh, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now first of all, the sons of God. I think if you'll turn to the 38th chapter of the book of Job, you'll find that he refers to the sons of God there at the time of creation. The challenge is made by God to Job and he says, uh, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 4. Uh, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, as there was no other book written in the Bible so far as we know when Job was written, they are the two occurrences of the sons of God in this one book. Well, if the sons of God were at the beginning of the creation of man and the earth made for man, they couldn't have been ordinary men. They must have been the angelic world. And when you know in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar saw three men walking in the furnace, and the fourth one was like the Son of God, he goes on to tell you what he meant, for he says, God hath sent his angel. We didn't interpret it, he's done it himself. So there we have another instance that the sons of God were angels. Well, that's the word that's used in Genesis 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. Of course, you may say, how and why? And don't ask me. Glad I don't know. But I do know this, that there are evidences in the scriptures that these fallen angels are desirous of possessing the bodies of men. And some of them were so felt the need to possess bodies so much that when they were turned out of a man that they asked permission to enter swine. It's all written for our learning. It can't be just because the writer didn't know what else to put in the book. There are hints enough if we will just follow them. That here we're on the verge of a mystery, the mystery of iniquity. And it may be yet headed up in the history which is being made now by the manifestation of the son of perdition who will just be the crisis of the whole thing. 
What else we have in this book of Job? The coming of the uh, sons of God to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, I'm reading verse 7, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. It's a strange expression to use, but that's similar to the one in Zechariah. And one of the translations of the uh, passage in verse 7 I came across is posting up and down. Posting. And that immediately made me think, of course, it would, wouldn't it? The weird sisters, hand in hand, posters of the sea and land, thus to go about, about, peace, the charms wound up. See? Devils at work. Posters. Shakespeare knew it somehow or the other. Of course, he most likely wrote those words just the back of Margaret Station, although, of course, he didn't come to the chapel of the open book and learn anything about it. It's a bit before the time. But it's interesting, anyhow. Posting. Posting. Your adversary the devil goeth up and down like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Or he may come as an angel of light. It doesn't matter if it can be a lion or an angel or suit his purpose. He's here. And now he has access into the presence of God, apparently. And he can argue with God. Uh, verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Hast thou considered him? Now there's, there's another light let in. Evidently, there's a greater place to be uh, left in our theology and our understanding of the purpose of the ages for the conflict between God and Satan, light and darkness, good and evil, that's outside the realm of man altogether. Otherwise, these things would be monstrous. But the Lord challenged Satan. And Satan responded. And he responded in character. Satan said, Doth Job fear God for naught? See? At once. Doth he fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him? And about his house? And about all that he hath? In other words, it pays Job to be upright and eschew evil. Look what you've done for him. But you touch him. And he'll curse you to your face. Well now it's apparently something that God says, well, I don't like doing it. But it's one of the things that will have to be done. And so it, was, it took place. And then you know, the wonderful thing is that he lost his home, he lost his children, and there he was. And he didn't sin. He said those words that have been often said, Naked came I out of one another's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in all this. Job sin not, nor charge God foolishly. And then it started all over again. And he said, Ah, said he, chapter 2, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. You let me touch him, his body. And the Lord said, You can touch his body, but you mustn't touch his life. That's New Testament teaching. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Untouchable. You can lose your crown. Colossians says that no man beguile you of a reward. But Colossians says your life is hid with Christ in God. It was true then, it's true now and true always. Your life isn't involved. But your circumstances, your possessions, everything else. So he touched him. And then, 
And then, poor Job collapsed. And he opens with the words in chapter 3, after this, opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And if you'd have gone through what Job had gone through, you may have cursed your day long before he did. We have heard of the patience of Job, says Jacob. And you'll hear of the impatience of Job in a lot of these chapters. For they do not, as it were, cancel one another out. For the word patience in the New Testament is based upon hope. And Job held to one thing all the way through. Though he slay me, he says, yet will I trust him. But to pretend I understand him, no, I cannot. And he was honest. All the others thought they got the answer. And he hadn't. And he was honest enough to say, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. And the more they tried to make out he was a secret sinner, the more he maintained his integrity. And at the end, in spite of it all, God said to these three men, you haven't spoken of me as my servant Job has. Job offered a sacrifice for their sins. Look at that. As I said in an earlier one, God doesn't want a lot of yes men round him. He wants you to agree with him, but not to pretend it and put on airs and mock modesty and piety. And so, while we're not to emulate Job in some of these words, let's see to it that we're genuine and true in what we do act and say. Well now, there are many passages of scripture where we have this way in which Satan interferes. You remember the numbering of the children of Israel. Satan moving David to do so. You remember the words of our Saviour concerning Peter. Peter, Satan hath desire to have thee, that he might sit thee as weep, but I have prayed for thee. That looks as though it was a genuine thing. And then we have the book of Jude, where we have a revelation there of something we would never have known. The Michael, uh, Archangel Michael, when he contended with the devil over the body of Satan, did not bring a raiding accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. So he is a mighty person. Why was he contending for the body of Satan? The body of Moses? How do we know? Except it may have been at the time of the transfiguration when Moses appeared on the mountain. But there are enough indications in the scripture to help us to see that we mustn't set aside this as a fairy tale and a bit of folklore. It's a vital part. If only these three men and Job had known what was written in chapter 2, they would have understood that there was a purpose that necessitated it. It was the feeling that there was a blind a sort of uh, power at work that had no beginning or end or purpose in it that made Job so irascible. And you discover many a person, when trouble falls upon them, one of the first things they say is, why should this happen to me? That's the cry of the human heart. It's here. And then there gradually emerges a trust, even in the, in the welter of all this. And he says, All my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Thou wilt call and I will answer thee. Or that magnificent note that struck and has been struck ever since round the whole wide world. In the midst of it all, I know that my Redeemer liveth. But we've got to go through a good deal of other aspects of teaching before we reach those points. The next time we meet together, we shall have to then turn 
to chapter 4 and other chapters and get an idea of the character of these three men, Elihaz and the other two that shared with him. Because they represent three different approaches and they're as true today as when they were first uttered. So with that, I think we'll have to accept the limitations of our time again and bring this little study to an end. And uh, if you who are listening to me feel that we haven't made much headway, well, I'd quite agree with you. And I think that anybody who thinks he can take the book of Job and take it in his stride and feel there's no problems that are besetting him and no answers that he hasn't solved, well, I think the person hasn't got a very great conception of the magnificence of the book he's dealing with, but a very unreal conception of his own abilities.